If you could make your, make your way back to your seat. All right, get back to your seats. Move away. Uh, all right, good morning, everyone. My name is Obed, and I'm one of the leaders here. And um, again, what a joy it is for us to gather. And if you are new, welcome. I'm very thankful that you've decided to dedicate this part of your Sunday to gathering with us. And I am certain that you will, um, um, as a result of gathering with us this morning, your life um, will begin to change and in so many ways. And so if you have Bible, turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. The book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes. We are still in Ecclesiastes. And the goal for us is to be done with Ecclesiastes. Um, I know. <laughs> I was just trying to make sure I got the dates right and everything. You all right, Anna? You good? Okay. Oh, yeah, there you go. Um, we will be done just before Easter. That is the plan. All right. And so this morning we are in chapter 8, and we are going to be finishing chapter 8, and we are going to be um, focusing on 10 verses 10 through to 17, verses 10 through to 17. I will lead us in the reading of God's word, and as I do so, may you stand for the reading of God's word. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 10 through to 17, reads, then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, Yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. Verse 14, there is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom, to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep. Then I saw all the works of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. Let's pray. God, oh, there's just so much in here. And we need you. I need 
your wisdom to communicate clearly and effectively. And God, we need your spirit to give us understanding beyond our natural abilities. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. One of the most unforgettable moments in my life was finding out that one of my friends lived with snakes. It was a nightmarish experience indeed. I remember while I was there in this home pretending to be amazed by the vast collection of snakes and resolving in my mind, I'll never be back in this house again. That was the end of our friendship. I'm kidding. My wife is of Greek descent, and in most Mediterranean cultures, it's the norm um, to live with your extended family even after you're married. Wow. We never did that. My kids desperately want a pet. So I know sometime in the future, I'll be living with an animal that's high maintenance and has no intention of paying rent. <laughs> we all live with something or someone. For some of you, what you live with is part of your body. You live with physical or mental health ailments. Um, for the last two years, we've all lived with the coronavirus. As a result, we've been living and relating to each other digitally more than ever. In fact, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day, and she just was like, man, I just realized that I spend so much of my time digitally and looking at a screen. We are living differently. As a human race, we live with a lot of things. Some personally affect us, others don't. Some of the things we live with are good and delightful, like hummingbirds, right? I live with hummingbirds, not in my house, but in my yard. I love hummingbirds. And so there are a lot of things we live with that are delightful and we enjoy, but others, not so much. This morning, we're going to discuss something we all have to live with um, as humans that we'll choose not to if we had the choice. And the thing that we live with that we don't really want to live with is injustice. Injustice. The book of Ecclesiastes, since we've started studying it, what you probably have realized is that it's, it's, it's just covered a lot. <laughs> it's covered a lot of things. And this morning, we are going to address the topic of injustice. And I get it. I get it, all right? Just injustice is something we don't really like to think about or talk about. 
But just like all the other unappealing topics we've explored through Ecclesiastes, I think it's important that we do so. The reason why it's important for us to deal with topics that make us uncomfortable is that as we do and as we address and tackle some of these topics, what I've found in my life, and I'm sure in most of yours, is that the realization of how broken and dysfunctional and corrupt the world is, the more we grow to treasure Jesus Christ. It's amazing. And so this morning, this is what we're going to do. We're going to be looking at the reign of injustice, number one, the end of injustice, and then lastly, the right response to injustice. First of all, let's look at the reign or the triumph of injustice. Look at verse 10. It says, Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. And so the preacher, who's the author of this book of Ecclesiastes, begins this unit of chapter 8 by considering the funeral of a person he describes as wicked. Firstly, he reveals that this wicked person spent a lot of time where? At the holy place, all right? At the holy You can talk back to me. It's fine, okay? It's fine, okay? At the holy place. And so we don't know exactly what this holy place is. It could be Jerusalem, which is known as the holy city of God. But I think it was actually um, the temple in Jerusalem, which was a place of religious worship. And so what the preachers revealing to us is that this person was not only wicked, but they also spent a lot of time at the center of religious worship in Israel. Martin Luther, who's the poster boy of the Reformation, um, was of the opinion that the wicked person being described here, who go in and out of the holy place, were some of Israel's religious leaders. They were hypocrites. They appeared to be righteous because of how active they were, okay, in the holy place. But the truth is, they were wicked. They were wolves in sheep's clothing. They were wicked men and women clothed in righteousness. And so what does this teach us? Appearance can be misleading. Someone's outward appearance, it's not always an accurate reflection of who they truly are. Interestingly, even though this wicked individual lived a life of hypocrisy, um, they were never exposed. They were never found out. How do we know this? Let's read verse 10 again, okay? It says, Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. In other words, even after they died and they were buried... They were celebrated in the same city they went about their evil deeds. 
when the wicked get away with wickedness and are celebrated as if they were righteous, this is an absurd form of injustice. And in verse 14, the preacher articulates this kind of um, injustice even more. Look at verse 14, all right? Look at verse 14. It says, There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said this also is vanity. If you have been with us for a while, you'll notice that this is not the first time in the book of Ecclesiastes the preacher has expressed disdain for this kind of injustice. At the beginning of chapter 7, he bemoaned the same thing. He bemoaned this same kind of injustice where bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people. The preacher is heartbroken and frustrated when this kind of injustice appears to triumph. And what he does in conclusion is that he clarifies, he classifies it as vanity, as a troubling reality that haunts humanity. And so the question I'm sure you're asking and I want to ask is, why is this? Why are bad people allowed to continue in their evil ways? Why do good people have troubles bad people deserve? And why do bad people get what good people deserve? Why are cruel dictators voted into power while good leaders are silenced? Why does the man who robs investors of their inheritance get a huge bonus while hard-working people lose their jobs and their homes? Why are suffering pastors jailed while persecutors of the church are free to continue harming the church? Why do dishonest co-workers receive promotions while you remain stuck at the same pay grade? Why do non-Christians who openly mock God have more money and less problems than faithful believers? And I kind of experienced this last year, this time last year. My wife and I, we were looking for a new home, okay? <laughs> we were looking for a new home. We had outgrown our 800 square feet. Um, home. I was going to, I don't know what to call it. It was like a box that we were, it felt like a box. And we had it growing and we were looking for, and obviously we wanted to live closer um, to here and um, where the church is and where most of our ministry work takes place. And so what happened was the, the problem, of course, most of you know, is that San Diego is ridiculously expensive. There's no way we could afford um, to rent a home with the budget we have. And so what did I do? I, I would say, uh, you know, I just was like, God, we need you. And so what I'll do most days is to take a walk around um, this area and just pray. And just be like, God, you own every home <laughs> here, okay? And you have the, the, the ability, you can provide us with a home. And I remember once I was praying and walking past some like really nice homes. And I was like, God, most of these homes, people that hate you and mock you, <laughs> don't want anything to do with you, are living in these homes. They're just 
corrupting this neighborhood and we're here for you to live for you and be on mission with you. Give us one of these homes. So true, isn't it? That was my experience of injustice. Injustice has been and will continue trending. And so why has injustice continued to reign and triumph? The preacher doesn't leave us hanging. As always, he has an opinion. Do you want to know his opinion as to why um, injustice keeps triumph? Um, reigning. Look at verse 11. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. There's a lot here. In his opinion, the preacher believes injustice thrives because there is no apparent punishment okay there is delayed punishment in other words when crime is not punished quickly wicked people will carry on doing wrong and encouraged to do even more evil injustice reigns things seem to be getting back from bad to worse the news networks remind us daily of this Bobby Jameson put it this way. This world is riddled with injustice. Spin the globe, then put your finger down. If you land on water, consider what cargo ships held slaves that crossed those seas for centuries. If you strike the earth, you will likely have touched some form of serious, disruptive, long-standing injustice. Will injustice continue to reign? Is there ever going to be a time when it will end? Or is this the norm? What we're stuck in? If there is a possibility injustice will end, what's the solution? What can be done to abolish injustice? And with these questions in mind, this is where we will turn next. The preacher what he's going to do next is offer a glimmer of hope for a world where wickedness thrives because punishment is delayed. And so we've looked at the reign of injustice. Next, we'll look at the end of injustice. Look at verse 12. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, Yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. All right, before we continue, just so you know, this is going to get really technical. And I hope if you're a coffee drinker, you drank some or whatever. But just lean forward, all right? Slap yourself if you're falling asleep because you need to really concentrate here, all right? You guys ready? It's going to get really technical. All right, let's go. The first part of this verse, all right? continues the main idea of verse 11 that is the prosperity of the wicked okay you would all you guys with me yeah brilliant the verse we just read verse 12 is a description of an extremely sinful person 
who has everything going for them, okay? In other words, they are hashtag blessed, okay? <laughs> and they're considered blessed, <laughs> so cheesy, and they're considered blessed because their life has been prolonged. They've lived a long life. In the ancient world, the longer you lived, the more blessed that you were. And so, after briefly describing this wicked but prosperous individual, the preacher goes on to declare that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. Okay? Just so you know, and we covered this like two weeks ago, this whole fear of God, but I'm going to give you guys a recap, okay? Just so you know, the, the person who fears God is not a person who's terrified of God, although this may be part of it, okay? But a person who has a biblical and healthy fear of God realizes that God is God and we are not. Michael Eaton describes the fear of God as the awe and holy caution that arises from a realization of the greatness of God. Therefore, in this context, the fear of God is this unending, ongoing, consuming awareness of who God truly is. The fear of God, okay, we're going to define it from this angle, is this unending, ongoing, consuming awareness of God. Do you fear God? Do you live with a consuming awareness of God? The one true God of the Bible the creator and sustainer of the universe, he's not hiding from you. He's not saying, try and find me. Okay? One true God, sustainer and creator of the universe, desires for you to know, worship, and live your life consumed by his presence. And so in view of this, here's the point of verse 12. Even though the wicked seem to be doing well now, in the end, when it's all said and done, those who fear God will be better off. And this makes sense, all right? Verse 12, makes sense. But what's going to happen is the preacher is going to ruin it all. He's going to say something, right? What he says next kind of just makes things so complicated, right? Think about being at a party, you're dancing, everything's going well, you're having a good time, and then the power cuts out. And then you're like, what is happening? Kind of killing the vibe, all right? And this is what this, the next verse 13 is going to seem like. Let's read verse 13. He feel like he kills the vibe, but he doesn't. He's going somewhere. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. Okay. If you remember, earlier in verse 12, the preacher talked about how the wicked person prospers and lives long. But right here in verse 13, he seems to contradict everything he just said. 
He says, it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow. One moment he says, um, life's going to go well with the wicked, but here he's saying it's actually not. What's happening here? Obviously, may sound like a contradiction, but if we really look closer, and I read a ton on this, it's one of the most challenging parts of Ecclesiastes, by the way, just so you know. <laughs> I read a lot. May seem to be contradicting, but a closer look reveals that he's actually not because everything he's saying makes sense when we view verse 12 and 13 in light of the present and the future. What do I mean by this? Philip Ryken will help us here. He says, taking by themselves, these verses might possibly refer to our present existence. Whether or not things will go well for us depends on whether or not we honor God. But because of the verses that come before and after, it seems more likely that he's looking ahead to the future. And so here's what verses 13, 12 and 13 are trying to communicate, okay, in a nutshell. The wicked may be doing well in this present age, but they will suffer the consequences of their wicked deeds in the future. And the opposite is also true. Those who fear God may suffer now, but it will be well with their soul in the future. In view of all of this is, injustice may continue to reign, but one day it will be brought to an end. And so the question is, when will the day come? When will things be made right? When will ISIS pay for persecuting Christians and beheading innocent people? When will corrupt politicians be exposed and removed from power? When will sex traffickers get what they deserve? When will child abusers be found out and receive the deserved punishment from their terrible actions towards children? Some believe Protests are the answer. Others believe signing petitions are enough to solve the problem of injustice. Some believe if we get more Christians in positions of power, injustice will be dealt with. Others are convinced a police reform is the solution. And some believe a hashtag is the most effective way to deal with the problem of injustice. And let me just say this. All of these things are good. Okay? All of these endeavors have and will continue to make a difference. And as God's people, we must continue to utilize every tool available to us, every policy or every resource to stifle and suffocate injustice, okay? Um, as a church this year, we, we, were, we just 
felt God leading us to be or, or accelerate our local outreach endeavors. Okay, and part of that will be um, looking at how we can be involved in social justice work and helping the needy and all of those things. We want to do that as Christians and as a church. We've made a commitment to do that more from this year. Absolutely. But the truth is, all of these things are never going to actually completely solve the problem of injustice. Be honest with yourself. All of these things, at best, will leave a a dent, but they will never be enough to completely eradicate injustice. And so, if protests and petitions and better leaders and police reform cannot solve the problem of injustice, what can? Who or what will finally bring injustice to an end and bring about the reign of justice in our world? The Bible has something to say about this. The Bible teaches that our hope for justice and healing is not found in a set of principles, but in a person. And his name is Jesus Christ. At an unknown time in the future... Guess what? Jesus will come again. He will return and return to end all injustice and bring about a new heaven and a new earth where justice will reign supreme. And this coming day is known as Judgment Day. Most scholars believe that when the preacher says it will go well with those who fear God and it will not go well with the wicked because they don't fear God, he's actually referring to the day of judgment. Let's be honest. When I said judgment day, some of you got uncomfortable because the topic of judgment is just really not something we like to talk about. But when we do talk about it, what we do is we downplay it or deny it, or we view it as a topic for those weird end times people, okay, who are obsessed with end times. The other reason I don't think we talk about it enough is because it's so complex so complicated but the truth is whenever we talk about injustice and the need for justice we have to talk about the day of judgment because one day it's that day where Jesus Christ will return and execute full and final justice for all mankind for all of time the day God will judge the world through Christ and bring about ultimate justice is a future we all should long for. The more we're exposed to pain and suffering and injustice in the world, the louder our hearts should cry, come 
Lord Jesus, come. David Mattis says this, Christians do not settle in with injustice in this age, even as it surrounds us, even as we find its impulses within us. In Christ, we aim and act for genuine justice. Yet in Christ, we also know that full and final justice is coming. Just as grace incarnate came in him, so also justice will come with his return. And that's true. A lot of movies have just ruined the whole idea of Judgment Day. It's just have. But it's true that on, there will be a day where we, we just don't know. It's unknown to us that Jesus will actually return. And he will establish his throne. And he will bring about a new heaven and a new earth and bring about justice to the world. And so how then do we live in a world where injustice prevails because final justice has not yet been executed? Apart from doing our part in stifling injustice, what else can we do while we wait for Jesus to end injustice? The preacher, as always, has answers for us in the verses that follow. And so we've looked at the reign of injustice. We've looked at the end of injustice Lastly, we'll look at the right response to injustice. Look at verse 15. And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. Obviously, you guys know if you've been in, with us in Ecclesiastes, this is not the first time um, the preacher is encouraging us to enjoy the fruits of our labor. He's done so in other parts of Ecclesiastes. And so, what does it truly mean to eat and drink and be joyful? What kind of joy is he actually commending? <laughs> To start with, this is not an encouragement to eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we will die. Also, this is not a validation of the Epicurean hedonism, which tells you to party until you drop, because that's all there is to life. Lastly, this is not an endorsement of the internet slang YOLO. Okay, an acronym for you only live once, which is a call to live your life to the fullest, even if there's serious risks involved. It's not saying that either. And so by commending us to eat and drink and be joyful, listen closely to this. The preacher has in mind a Middle Eastern or Mediterranean culture where people love gathering with friends and family around the mill. Okay, as I said, my wife is of Greek descent and they love gathering as families around the mill. 
every gathering has to have food, okay? And they love sitting for hours with wine and good food and just lingering in fellowship with each other. Nick Bona says this, the approach to a joyous life is not found in pinning your hopes and dreams on possessions or trips or whatever else your earnings can afford you in this world. Rather, the most rewarding approach to life is to enjoy the process of your work and the food and friendships it allows you to possess. When we get right down to it, friends, fellowship, and food to share together is what kind of makes life enjoyable. At the end of the day, okay, it doesn't matter what kind of food you eat or how fancy the restaurant is. What really matters is the basics of food, friends, and fellowship. And when Jesus is at the center of it all, that's when we experience true and lasting joy. Life is And I think Ecclesiastes has helped us see that. Life wasn't just hard back then in the ancient world. Life is incredibly hard. Injustice is reigning. And judgment is delayed. But we can experience true joy not in what this world has to offer, but I believe in fellowship with a community of believers who love and desire to live for Jesus. Put simply, we are called to delight in God and, in, and enjoy his gifts. Um, Joe Rigney, Rigney wrote an awesome book on all of this, on how we can actually enjoy God's gifts and at the same time enjoy the giver. He says, God's gifts are invitations to know and enjoy him more deeply. And as this truth is impressed upon our hearts, we will discover that the things of earth grow strangely bright in the light of his glory and grace. And so by being commended to joy, to enjoy the fruits of our labor, we are being called and inspired more into a community of believers who love and live for Jesus. And so that is why here at King's Cross Church, we make a big deal out of gathering, being in community with other people. Make a big deal out of it, not because we think it's cool, and it's nice to just kind of hang out. But in our community groups, we endeavor to point each other to Jesus. We endeavor to love and serve each other like Jesus loves and serves us. It's an amazing opportunity we provide for you guys. So if you are not currently in a community group, there might be good reasons. But once those reasons have been handled, make sure that you dive deep into one of our community groups. 
And so lastly, apart from doing our part in stifling injustice, what else can we do while we wait for Jesus to bring an end to injustice? Okay, look at verse 16 and 17. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night um, do one's eyes see sleep. Verse 17, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun, however much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it, even though a wise man claims to know he cannot find it out. What is this telling us? This is basically telling us that it's impossible to know for certain how God is at work in our world. It's impossible to know exactly how God is at work in our world. And so how then should we respond to this limitation? Should we get frustrated? Should we get mad and begin to believe there's no God? Okay, if there's injustice and nothing's happening, should we just then begin to doubt God? Should we start doubting the return of Jesus Christ? How should we respond to this? And I think one of the most helpful responses is found in Psalm 37. And so grab your Bibles and turn to Psalm 37. This is a psalm by King David. Um, and I think what the preacher's thinking in this unit of chapter 8, he had this psalm in mind. Um, it's a psalm that primarily deals with living in the midst of injustice and how to face life in that situation. And so, are you there? Psalm 37, we're going to read verses 1 to 12. And I'm reading from the ESV, not because I think it's the best version, but it's the only version that opened up on my iPad. Um, verse 37. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Verse 3. What does it say? Can someone read it? Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Verse 5, commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out his evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while the wicked will come be no more, though you look carefully at 
his place he will not be there but the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace verse 12 the wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him but the lord laughs at the wicked for he sees that his day is coming injustice continues to reign but we are reminded here to continue to trust in the Lord and do good and delight ourselves in the Lord and commit our ways to the Lord and be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him and so as we think about all of this, may we as a church community trust and hold on to hope that our King and our Lord and our Savior will one day come and put an end to injustice. And as we think about his coming judgment and his coming dealing with injustice may we respond to this with humility knowing that we too we too don't deserve what god has given us but he has given it to us because of his grace and so if you're here this morning for the first time and you're not a christian may you through god's spirit know and see and experience Jesus let's pray God thank you so much oh, there's a lot that we covered today and God I know for sure that we all have so many questions and so many thoughts and so God I pray that you would bring clarity where there's confusion God I pray that you would empower where we feel weak you will give us power where we feel weak and God I pray that as we have been exposed to the reality of the world that we live in specifically when it comes to injustice may you cause us to treasure Christ more in his name we pray amen <laughs>